the best rugby insight and analysis. OTB Sports Rugby. How, how would you argue if Johnny Sexton was to go and win a World Cup with Ireland and lead them to it that he wouldn't be the greatest? Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. Now then, you're welcome back to the show. So have we entered the Carlos Alcarez era in men's tennis? That is one of the questions after last night's win at Flushing Meadows. He is now the youngest men's world number one in history. He's the youngest Grand Slam winner since Nadal won back in 2005 when he was also aged 19, Nadal in 05. Capacity crowd of 23,000 on their feet inside the Arthur Ashe Stadium last night. An array of shot making on display from Alcaraz. And he did, of course, beat Casper Ruud from Norway in five sets. Uh, five sets. Uh, Ruud, 23 years of age, the number five seed. Uh, so Alcaraz won the fifth, 6-3. Caitlin Thompson of Racket Magazine is with us. So the Alcaraz era, this is when we'll say it began. How glorious it's going to be is going to be the interesting question. What have we got on our hands here? Uh, generational talent is the easy way to describe it. Uh, there's a lot of exciting young players coming up on the men's side that we have gotten a chance to take a closer look at over the past two weeks. But Carlos Alcaraz has been somebody who most of us in tennis have had our eyes on for quite a while. And this, if his skill set and mentality is anything to be believed based on what we saw, uh, going to be the first of many, many, many. Grand Slam championships. Mm. So world number one, he's won six ATB events uh, to his name. This is, I guess, his big massive breakthrough. Uh, emotional scenes, he served an ace, uh, dropped to the ground, very much in tears. Uh, only 19, of course, but what kind of personality is he? As far as I can tell, he seems pretty simple in a way that um, is sort of maybe endearing. I think he's somebody who has a lot of like eat, sleep, tennis kind of mentality as opposed to a, uh, um, you know, like a Federer type who speaks four or five different kinds of languages and, and is a little bit more of a James Bond kind of character. I think this guy is like born and raised on the clay courts of Spain and wants to play tennis all day long. I think the fact that he made his matches this past week especially um, thinking especially about that Tiafo match coming into the final before uh, the semis on Friday, he made those a lot longer than I needed. They needed to be, um, and I can say a lot about that based on why I think that is or how uh, tactically that happened. But part of me thinks that actually kind of is part of his personality, which is just he loves to play so much. He's not looking for a ruthless uh, machine-like ending to, to tennis. I think he's a, basically a giant kid who uh who has a joy joyousness in his play that is really really fun to watch um he's also skill set wise so so exciting just because he has a lot of the tools and a lot of the game um that his 19 years would sort of indicate that he wouldn't be ready to have sort of mature and ready to deploy but yeah personality wise i think he's kind of just like a See, see tennis ball, hit tennis ball kind of guy. I'm not sure he's reading Nietzsche on the on the sidelines. Mm. Uh, further to your point about time on the court, just shy of 24 hours of tennis across the US Open. So that's the most minutes on court in Grand Slam history. So durability, not an issue for him. And on his game itself, so 
he I noticed yeah he had 55 uh, winners to Rude's 37 and threw in plenty of unforced errors as well I was reading like uh, across the last 18 months this incredible rise from 141st in the world to number one in the world you know his shots will often make an appearance on ESPN Sports Centre in their top 10 plays of the day where they go through you know the best of sport across the board and he'll pop up there so if you want to see dramatic shot making, then Alcaraz is your guy as well. Yeah, he's really fun in the way that um, it's so tempting, especially for the commentators we have here, who tend to be the same boring, mostly dudes who've been commentating on tennis for the last 30 years. I think uh, over the fortnight, I heard Cliff Drysdale, who's got to be 180 years old uh, and still refers to the women players as girls. Um these people have been used to talking about, especially on the men's side, because they don't really let women commentate on men's tennis here for some reason, uh, about how the comparisons to the big three are inevitable, right? Like if you've spent the last 20 years really talking about three names on the tennis tour, even if it's not the match you're commentating, the specter of them is is looming large in the slam, then I think it can be kind of derivative. And I want to be careful not to be derivative to Carlos Alcaraz, Carlitos, as he likes to be called, um, because I think the comparison is not exactly accurate. That said, there's elements of, of these this greatness that we've watched, some of the improvisation and shot making and creation that people really like in Federer's game, where he's not bound to patterns. He's capable of throwing in uh, a trick shot, a dupe shot, something that looks unbelievably gracefully athletic. He also has this determinism and sort of battle fatigueness of Nadal. Plus, he combines a lot of the durability and flexibility and uh, ability to turn defense into offense that Djokovic has. But really, what I like the most about him is he's joyous and he's creative. And I think that has a little bit to do with why he made a few of those matches in the Fortnite a little bit closer than they needed to be. A more disciplined player, or Casper Ruud, for example, would have had possibly fewer opportunities because of his tennis, but would have seized the opportunities more. But Carlos Alcaraz is coming to the game, it appears, and and those of us who've been watching him now for about 18 months, as you said, as he he's sort of rocketed up through the rankings, what we like about him is obviously the things that are very, very visible for anybody to see. He's fast. He's creating shots that you don't think are geometrically possible. He's dogged and fights and gets inspired. Um, but he's also creates such an incredible amount of pace without much effort. And he seems to be having a lot of fun doing it. I talk a lot about how on the women's side, it's been really fun for the most part to watch the women, the new champions, the new faces we have a lot of times embrace joy and smiling. And I think that that's, that's no small thing, especially when you've on the men's side been confronted with, you know, 20 years of like very serious business sport is fun to me. And Carlitos Alcaraz above all the amazing things that you can say about him for me is probably most exciting because he's really fun to watch and he is having fun playing and that really telegraphs. His rise from 141st in the world where he was uh, hanging around in January of 21 to now number one, that sounds utterly extraordinary. And, you know, he, he replaces uh, Leighton Hewitt, who managed to do it at the age of 20 in 01. There, I guess at the same time, there's a lot of mitigation there. There's d- the decline of the big three 
And then there's Djokovic, I think, missed out on 6,000 points this year, given his uh, vaccine situation and Medvedev wasn't at Wimbledon as well. So uh, certain things have conspired here to, I guess, allow Alcaraz go all the way to number one. But nonetheless, that is as dramatic as it gets, isn't it? 18 months from 150 yeah. odd in the world of this. This is this is insane. Absolutely. And, and those are real results. That isn't fluky. Totally agreed with you um, in terms of some opportunities that presented themselves both because of Wimbledon's unilateral decision not to award points to Russian, uh, to anybody because of the kerfluffle over the ban on Russian and Belarusian athletes, you know, Djokovic's self own where he just kind of refuses to follow the rules. Whereas everybody else has is, you know, we've talked about ad nauseum, but more than anything else, Carlitos Algaraz has beaten all of them and he's beaten all of them pretty emphatically. He beat Djokovic emphatically earlier this year. He beat Rafa this is really a changing of the guard in a way that we've seen generations of talent come up after the big three. There was that famous lost generation, Delpo because of injuries, uh, Songa getting to a few finals and then kind of fading into obscurity. You know, you can look at your, uh, your Monfils's team is a little bit part of that. He snuck in a grand slam based on injury. It's hard to imagine he getting you know, him getting back um, up into the latest, later stages of slams soon, you know, Zverev team, and uh, sorry, Zverev, and uh, and thinking about how this Tsitsipas is not getting any younger, but all of a sudden, those guys are, I would think, looking over their shoulder and thinking, oh no, Carlos has arrived before we did. He got the slam before any of us did, uh, team accepted. And I think this feels to me very, very much like a different sort of beast. This isn't just a generation or two of talent coming up after the big three and challenging and pushing them and taking advantage when they feel a little long in the tooth or, you know, Djokovic's case, maybe, you know, due to defaulting or, or vaccine, you know, don't get to play. This feels like this guy is the future. He's the future of tennis. And I think watching him play, I got to see him first in person at the uh, 2021 Indian Wells tournament that had been postponed. So he was probably in the top 100 at that point, but not where he is now. And just being blown away by how scary good he was. We watched him play a few points um, and just the acceleration, both in terms of his body, but also his racket head, the way he could create pace. I don't want to get too technical because I feel like sometimes you can lose people if you do that, but just the way he plays the game, the way he sees the court, the way he moves around it, and the way he can create from a lot of different places. When you're seeing highlights, that's what you're seeing the result of. And if you watch him do it, that is so many levels above what Hmm. the average elite athlete is really able to conjure. And I think that's the reason that so many of us, even those of us who really liked Casper Ruud and loved his journey and, and are really excited, myself included, to see him back in another final after making a go of it at Roland Garros before falling in straights to Rafa. Mm. Carlitos is a different beast. He's a different kind of player. He might get his challenger the way that the big three pushed themselves and Federer just happened to be kind of the first to arrive on the scene. He might get that sooner rather than later. But right now he is levels above pretty much everybody else in the world. And so this number one, you know, doesn't feel like it has an asterisk next to it for for all of us who watch the sport. With okay, well, you know that, that's really interesting, and that's very important for uh, men's tennis, and I guess by extension in the post arena uh, world, which we'll come on to in a second, in the uh, women's tennis, because there was the I, I, I suspect there was probably the great fear and the assumption 
that somebody had to come just because of Father Time and dominate after the big three and there would just be this constant sense of, well, he's not in their league at all and just he's lucky he came after them. And, and that would be uh, just not a great feel for the sport for five, ten years. Agreed. And I think very similarly uh, to when we've had sort of a dearth, there was a real, there's a story that I like to talk about because to me it's one of the saddest stories in tennis and it's a real story of missed opportunity. But after the fading of uh, Pete Sampras, obviously Michael Chang, Jim Courier, a lot of these folks were, um, you know, were, were already off the stage. Agassi was one of the last to retire in the early 2000s. Men's tennis was in real conflict. There was Murat Safin, there was Leighton Hewitt, as you mentioned. There were a few names that really could, um, you know, make Grand Slam finals, Pat Rafter, but it didn't feel like there was an Agassi or a Sampras or somebody really, really, you know, exceptional. And at the time, there were both Williams sisters ascendant, Jennifer Capriati, Kim Kleisters, uh, Maria Sharapova was not yet even on the scene, Justine Henna. This was just a absolute murderer's row. Steffi Graf had just left the scene, but an absolute murderer's row, late 90s, early 2000s, for women's tennis. Just absolutely amazing, amazing depth. And it was at that time that the WTA and the ATP sat down and tried to negotiate and have a joint tour, something that would have been absolutely miraculous and something that should have happened. The ATP walked away because they didn't want to share money with the women. And they their bet, their gamble paid off two years later when Roger Federer came on the scene. And obviously it was followed by Rafa and, and Novak to sort of complete that trifecta. But it was a real, to me, that's a sad story because it means the sport could have been creating parity and interconnectedness way, way, way earlier. Um, and I think that thought about what happens when your big headliners step aside is a frequent one that the sport really wrings its hands over. And I think I don't tend to ascribe too much of it because I'm somebody who doesn't love attaching the game's successes or failures to a a limited amount of stars. I think the game is so much more varied and interesting than that. It's more to me about the traveling circus of, uh, you know, rogues that, show up every week in some new locale and battle it out to the death. But for people who really like a star, there is very much that fear when, when the big three step aside, there is, and let me be clear about this. Absolutely. No doubt that Carlos Alcaraz can be as good as any one of them. And there is absolutely no doubt that he has the skills and the potential domination on multiple surfaces to, to do it pretty fast. And I think that's the level of generational talent that he possesses. Uh, And my hope for tennis is that there's enough variety around him and cast of characters that's compelling. And I think there is, and obviously at Racket, it's our job to highlight them uh, to make sure that that stays interesting. Otherwise uh, this could get very, very one dimensional very quickly because that's how good and much better. I would say Carlitos Alcaraz, our new number one is. Wow. That is uh, amazing, really, because actually I, I, I do take your point on the stars. Uh, but for instance, golf is just mourning the loss of Tiger Woods and they just can't replace him. Nobody can capture the imagination like him. And it is just a vacuum. And, and uh, that's a tricky place to be. Uh, we, we, you mentioned he does something technical, which can be hard to explain. I appreciate uh, verbally, but let's not dumb down here totally. Uh, for the aficionados out there, give us one answer on what Alcaraz does that's a little bit special technically or that how he gets his speed. A lot of players on the men's tour think about the way that Nick Kyrgios, for example, hits his serve or his forehand uh, can end up creating overwhelming power and speed 
they can really take a huge cut at the at the ball and it becomes unplayable for their opponent. That's something a lot of elite men can do. Um, and I use Nick Curious as the example because it's so obvious when he's doing it. He takes a massive backswing and just absolutely clobbers the ball that comes at him. That's table stakes for elite men, but it's fun to watch. Carlos Alcaraz can do that without any hesitation on both sides, pretty much from anywhere in the court. To me, the closest way to explain it to another sort of readily available uh, uh, similarity is is watching, you know, uh, uh, the one inch punch from Bruce Lee. If you're watching a martial arts fight, any fight, anybody can take a giant swing and clobber their opponent. Bruce Lee could do almost no take back in almost no amount of time and create deadly force really, really quickly with absolutely no fanfare. And that's what Carlos Alcaraz can do. And it's really, really cool and exciting because I don't think I've ever seen it outside of like enter the dragon really uh, on a tennis court. And when you watch it, it's unbelievably cool to see. Uh, and it's very, very obvious because nobody else can do it. Okay, sold. You should be in marketing as well. I mean, Bruce Thank Lee you. in there. Okay. I mean, come on. That was uh, sold, <laughs> sold. Uh, so, Alcaraz, that's very exciting for the men's. As for the uh, women's side of the draw, week one was all about Serena, which we've uh, talked about ad nauseum at this stage. But I guess the interesting thing here, and, and maybe this is a parallel to Alcaraz, uh, the world number one, Iga Sviatek, uh, beat the number two, Yabur, in uh, straight sets. So the thing about uh, Sviatek, she's 21 years of age, she has been the standout player on the WTA uh, toward this season. At one stage, she had a 37-match unbeaten streak, which was uh, absurd. And this is now the third Grand Slam of her career. So she blitzed a French Open memorably in the COVID year, 2020. Uh, another French Open this year. Now US Open. She was in an Australian uh, semi-final this year as well. Are we starting to see, uh, you know, all this... Um, a turmoil of sorts and an inconsistency at the very top of the women's game. Are we starting to see the 21-year-old now taking ownership? I hope not, not because I have anything against Iga. The way she constructs points and her, um, you know, incredibly consistent ability to generate good or at least good enough tennis to get um, the better of her opponents is really, really um, spectacular to, to sort of get your mind around. But I also um, think that Part of it is she has so much more mental fortitude than the other f women on the tour. I think that there are a lot of matches that she can lose by being hit off the court if only the opponent on the other side of the net kept it together. And I'm specifically thinking of the last two matches that she played. Um, obviously, Arena Sabalenka, one of the biggest hitters in the, in the game. Somebody I absolutely love. She's kind of a maniac. Um, you know, she's just absolutely fearless. She's like a better Ostapenko because she'll go for the lines and go for pretty much any shot from any position, regardless of her ability to make it. And I love that that fearlessness sort of pervades her game. She was up pretty sizably uh, on the, in the third set against Iga in the semis. And I think that was very, very much her match to win. Uh, I also think Ons Jever, who has all the tools, all the variety, a very, very dynamic, compelling game um, much like she did at Wimbledon, just kind of didn't bring it, didn't bring her A game, didn't bring her uh, real ability to compete really until the very end of the second set. And if you give a set and a half away at the elite level, especially to somebody who's mentally strong as Iga, game over. You 
can't really crawl back from that deficit. And so I think not to take anything away from Iga Svantec, who, as you noted, had a monster, monster win streak, won both of her other Grand Slams at the French Open very emphatically, um, obviously deserves all of her success. She's got a whole game. I watched her play at the Roland Garros 2018 Junior Girls Championship, where she, um, I think, ended up in the final against Coco Goff. You know, she's just been a very, very, very talented young woman for a very long time mm. and has put the whole pieces together. I think for me, one of the things that I love about the World Women's Tennis Association generally is that there has been a lot of variety for a long time. And I think if you look at some of the other contenders in that draw, you know, thinking about Isla Tomlanovich's steely-eyed win against Serena, and she won that match. Serena threw the kitchen sink at her as such as she was able at these late years um, in terms of her movement and her ability to contend points, and Isla didn't flinch. Um, you look at somebody like Annette Contevite, who lost to Serena, but who is in was the second seed in the tournament and just absolutely great in terms of ball striking and movement. There's so many amazing women uh, in the tour. Maria Sakkari, who kind of just hasn't showed up to majors, but is a force um, on and off it, and frankly should have had two majors last year um, between uh, the U.S. Open and uh, the French. She had match points, I think, on uh, the ultimate winner, Barbara Kajikova at Roland Garros last year. You know, there's just so many women who can really get it done. So I think Iga, to me, is a little bit of a, an escape artist, plus somebody who's just won based on mental fortitude. Louisa Thomas, who racket read readers will recognize as one of our contributors, writes about tennis for the New Yorker. And she did a really powerful, great, thoughtful recap of the women's final that came out a few days ago and basically gave credit and talked about how the mental part of the game for these women is oftentimes more difficult to master than the physical. And I think if you look at the result, that is the lens through which I, I watch it. And that to me explains a lot of Iga's success. The game is big enough and she can generate pace enough and she has enough variety and enough tools. And I'm really not trying to shortchange her, but I think what she does better than everybody else, which is a skill that they can and should all be working on making better is that mental side of the game. And I think that at this stage where the, where the WTA is filled with a lot of younger players who haven't quite gotten used to the Klieg lights and the excitement and later stages of tournaments, she's basically been the first to adapt. And there's a lot of room for everybody else to catch up with her. Okay, that's pretty interesting. So she's more than the sum of her parts in some respects because of that mentality. Is she the sea biscuit to uh, the Bruce Lee analogy? I mean, what, what, are we, what are we billing her as? I mean, I know very little about horses because I'm scared of them. But I, if you say that, I will agree with it. Um, so three is impressive nonetheless. Is it Kerber? Was that the last uh, female player to win two in one season, two Grand Slams? That's what, six years ago, I think, is what I read. Didn't Osaka win? an Australian and a US in the same year or were hers fragmented between years? I feel, you might I feel, I feel fragmented. I, I read Kerber, so I suspect fragmented, but I guess Osaka did win in, in you know, that, that close period. We can we can give her pretty close to two in, in a 12-month span anyway. I think based on her continuous and consistent ability to compete and deliver, despite being at a young age, I don't see anything stopping Niga. Hmm. I think Naomi is has stopped herself basically. And I think Angelique Kerber, who's awesome and fun to watch and has a very unorthodox game, both based in the way that she directs traffic from the left hand and also gets really low when she hits ground strokes and creates angles that you kind of don't think are possible. She's really cool to watch. She announced she was pregnant before the tournament. And we know from a couple of other examples now that that's, uh, you know, not a given that, that women can come back and come back successfully. 
Um, you know, Victoria Azarenka has had a, a couple of really notable results in the last couple of years. So I definitely feel like um, Iga is, there are going to be very few barriers for her to dominate. And I think the women's tour has enough variety, talent, and different game styles where it's certainly possible. And like I said, I think on paper, um, Ons Jabber has a better game than Iga. And I think on paper, Arena Sabalenka has a better game than Iga. And that's just the last two people she played in the tournament. And again, that's not to take anything away from her, but I do think her edge is mental. And I think if the rest of the field got their minds right, she would have a real fight on her hands. Yeah. No, I don't think it takes anything away from her. I think uh, on the contrary, you know, it's an amazing thing to be able to do. So uh, as a final thought then, who uh, amongst all the female players at the moment uh, leaving mentality and all these other variables aside, who has the most talented, or the most talent rather? Who is the most talented female player? The, the the game when it's on that is the best, in your opinion. One thing I was so happy to see, having watched women's tennis forever and understood some of the storylines, um, there are two that I want to call out, and they happen to be the two women who didn't make it out in the semi, uh, make it out of the later stages of the game, but we're, we're right there. One of whom is Caroline Garcia. She, in terms of athletic ability, complete game and unbelievable movement and sort of a, a disarmingly simple looking game that involves putting herself in perfect position every time she hits the ball, kind of like what people feel like when they watch Roger Federer. It just looks like it's easy for him. And it's because he's positioned perfectly every time he hits the, the whatever shot he's hitting. Um, Caroline Garcia possesses that level of talent. And so far, it's only really manifested itself in doubles where she has a couple of grand slams. Watching her be able to put it together late this summer was really exciting. Getting to see her play up close um, after she had won Cincinnati, which is obviously a giant tournament coming into the US Open. She kind of got nervous and freaked out. Um when she played her semifinal, which is too bad and speaks to what I was talking about in terms of the mental game. But in terms of talent, she has everything and honestly has for a long time. And so I hope her success continues because it's really, really fun to watch her style of tennis, taking it early, attacking, moving forward, being able to have exquisite net game um, that I personally really like. So Garcia is somebody who I would look at to say, I hope backs up because talent-wise she should be there. The other one is Coco Goff, who's had... Um, you know, a lot of fanfare deserved um, based on her youth and her ability to kind of achieve milestones uh, very young. I don't love a prodigy story. I think that a lot of times it it limits our imagination in terms of what people can do and it, and it overemphasizes the results as opposed to the process. And the reason I bring that up is because Coco Goff has been so fun to watch, especially in the last year and a half. Obviously, she got to the French Open finals. Obviously, she's been getting to later and later stages in the tournament. And the reason I think this is happening is because she's incredibly talented as an athlete, but most importantly, because she's made changes to her game and she's continued to develop um, her game. Her forehand is eons better working with a new coach this year than it has been in the past couple of years since I started watching her and her serve is a lot better. So it really is, you know, sometimes for me, it comes down to how relatable are some of these things, obviously the way that these people move and hit the ball and, uh, have consistency is, is even for me, who was a pretty good junior and collegiate player 
out, outside the realm of possibility. But what I can relate to is having a bad forehand and fixing it and getting it to be better. And what I can relate to is getting to a giant final and freaking out and not being able to play your game. And then somehow, in the case of Iga, being able to stay calm and put it together. I don't quite relate to that yet, but I'm trying. <laughs> and so for me, watching the Cocos and the Caros this tournament has been really fun because I'm watching them slowly put it together year after year, week after week, sometimes day after day. And I think that to me is what's so cool about tennis is you can always get better. Um, and something as a 42 year old who's 20 years past my prime, uh, almost exactly. I like to think that with sort of continuous effort, you're either, you're either getting better or you're getting worse. Right. And so there's something really nice about the idea that, um, the talent is still there and, and the ability to improve is something that everybody, everybody does. They just do it a lot, lot, lot better. Caitlin Thompson, Racket Magazine. Brilliant as ever. Thank you. Thanks again.